Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. And more specifically, we'll be examining the battles the Canadians served in. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining in for our latest mini-sode. Now, this week, Shauna, I felt like we just needed a hero to talk about. Oh, yes, we do. I know. (laughs) Things are getting a little bit deep in the timeline here, and it's a little depressing. I know, I know. So today we are going to talk about four heroic men who earned the Victoria Cross while serving at the Battle of the Somme. Oh, interesting. Yes. So I don't think there'll be any spoilers. Um, I, I, Of course, I don't want to steal your thunder for next week, Shauna. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think there can be spoilers when something is over 100 years old. Well, I guess. (laughs) Maybe for someone who doesn't know any history, though. I guess so, yeah. Well, they can get a repeat. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Okay, so let's get started. So just a little bit of background. Um, The Victoria Cross um, was established by Queen Victoria in 1856 to recognize military personnel that had demonstrated some level of bravery when faced with the enemy during wartime. Now, it is the highest military decoration that could be bestowed upon a soldier in the British Commonwealth. And uh, we mentioned before that Canada has their own Victoria Cross as well, but that wasn't implemented until the early 90s. So these particular, um, I guess, awards or recognition would have been given by the British um, at the time. So we are going to start with a man by the name of Lionel Beaumaris Clark. We're going to call him Leo because I think that was what he preferred to be called. And it's just a lot easier. Yes. I don't want to repeat that name every time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Leo was born to Henry and Rosetta Clark on December the 1st. 1892 in the village of Waterdown, Ontario. But with family in England, Leo moved back to Essex when he was just a young boy, but his parents just couldn't stay away of Canada. They they came back in 1903 when Canada was really entering its age of prosperity. And we kind of talked about in the first episode where Canada was seeing this big economic boom in the early 1900s. Now for whatever reason, they were attracted to the city of Winnipeg because apparently (laughs) it was the promise of prosperity and progress in Canada. Well, remember, way back when we talked about it being one of the biggest cities when the railroad went through, right? Or at the beginning of World War I. You're absolutely right. I think Winnipeg just gets a bad rap um, now. So that's why I think, oh, Winnipeg. Like, I always think about that. I think it was like some Firestone tire commercial where the guy gets on the wrong plane and he thinks he's going to Hawaii, but he actually is going to Winnipeg. (laughs) 
So I always think like, oh, it's Winnipeg. You know what, though? I've never been to when I've never been in Winnipeg, but I went to Grand Beach, which is near Winnipeg. And that place is beautiful. I can't say much about the city myself, but Grand Beach is fantastic. I'm sure Winnipeg is lovely. <laughs> but I just... <laughs> There's just so many generalizations of Winnipeg. So that's just what I think. So I'm sorry, Winnipeg. Um, anyway, uh, they settled on 785 uh, Pine Street in Winnipeg. Now, as a young boy, Leo was known for his athleticism and adventurous spirit, uh, which actually might have been the reason why he never held down a steady job when he became a young man. At the outbreak of war, he was working as a railroad survey surveyor for CNR in northern Saskatchewan. But he did return home to enlist with the Winnipeg 27th Battalion as a private and was given service number 73132. Now, he left for England on May 17th, 1915, where he was, I guess, kind of presumably sent to Salisbury. I don't know for sure. Um, But from there, he would have been deployed to France with the 2nd Division in September, where he posted along the Ypres salient. However, he was transferred to the 2nd Canadian Regiment on October 13th to be with his brother, Charlie. Now, Charlie was a bomber that specialized in mill number five grenades and rifle grenades, and Leo was drawn to this dangerous line of work. Now, if you listen to episodes four and five, you will know that Canadians didn't really see a lot of action in the summer of 1915. Uh, again, that war, or again, the war had entered that period of stagnation. So I don't think Leo saw a lot of major action during this period, but nev- nevertheless, he still ended up getting wounded on December the 8th. I'm not really sure from what, but I'm assuming it was just the normal day-to-day exchange of fire that was happening through that period. Uh, Also to note, he was in the hospital for seven days with influenza in April of 1916. On August 6th, he was made acting corporal and he moved with his battalion to the Somme near Corselet, where the battle landed him back in hospital. But he was back on the lines by September 9th for the advance on Albert Beaupalm Road near the town of Pozier. Now, the 2nd Canadian Regiment took the shattered German line, but they were under constant counterattack. Now, Leo was ordered to protect the left flank where a trench block was being built. But the Canadians encountered heavy resistance and Leo watched as the men around him began to fall. Leo took his revolver and then two enemy rifles and began picking off the enemy one by one. A German officer lunged a bayonet into his leg, but that would be his last act. Yeah, he killed that (laughs) officer. (laughs) It wasn't a good move. Uh, As the remaining German soldiers turned to retreat, Clark ran after them, killing four and capturing the fifth. So essentially what happened is he took on a group of 22 men single-handedly, killing all but one. So Clark was deployed to the Regina Trench in early October, but he was hit by the debris of a shell. 
Now, his brother Charlie managed to dig him out from under the mud, but he was left paralyzed. And October 19th, 22-year-old Leo died from his injuries, which happened to be the very same day he was announced as a Victoria Cross recipient for his bravery at Pazier. So his father accepted the award from Canada's Governor General at the corner of Portage and Maine in front of 30,000 men, women, and children that came to pay their respect to their fallen hero. Um, his family actually even received a letter from King George V um, just sort of thanking their family for the sacrifices that they had made. So, Wow, yeah. that's pretty prestigious. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal. And it was a big deal for the governor general to come out at the time as well. That was the first time um, the governor general had actually in person awarded the Victoria Cross. So do you know why they decided to do that in person with this guy? You know what? I don't know. I don't know what made this particular case special. He was just so badass that totally. they had to do it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Way to go, Leo. That's right. Uh, so to finish off Leo's story, uh, he is one of three recipients of the Victoria Cross that actually lived on Pine Street. Now, after receiving pressure from the Women's Canadian Club of Winnipeg, the city council renamed the street Valor Road. And uh, Leo was also featured in a Heritage Minute that aired in 1991. So, Oh, I love the Heritage Minutes. I know, me too. So go check that out on YouTube. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's our hero Leo. Hero number one. Hero number one. We're going to move on to hero number two. His name is James uh, Cleland Richardson. I think I said that right. We're going to call him James. So uh, James was born to David and Mary Richardson on November 25th, 1895 in Belshiel, Lanarkshire, Scotland. Now, alongside his parents and his two siblings, James arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia on board at the SS Parisian on May 23rd, 1913. Now, with his father securing a job as chief of police, the family moved to Chilliwack, BC. But James ventured a little farther west and took a job at a factory in False Creek. But really, his love was for bagpiping. So he joined the 72nd Regiment, which is the Seaforth Highlanders, uh, which was a well-known pipe band in the area. Um, and at the outbreak of war, this brown-haired, blue-eyed young man joined the 16th Infantry Battalion and was assigned service number 28930. And he would go overseas, of course, as a piper. Ashley, he is a kindred spirit. I know. <laughs> I was excited. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Ashley is a piper as well. And she's very good. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I saw a video once of you doing your bagpipe thing, and it was really good. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you probably developed a bit of a crush on this guy, didn't you? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. No? No, he didn't reach uh, John McRae status level. Not many people do, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> That's right. 
So being early to enlist, James would have experienced much of what we've already discussed in previous episodes, meaning he started his journey at Valcarce, he went off to Salisbury, and he experienced his real first taste of action at the Battle of St. Julien. Now, if you want to know more about St. Julien, go listen to episode number two. Now, when James's battalion was sent to the Somme to attack the Regina Trench on October the 8th, the advance was immobilized by, guess what? Uncut barbed wire. No. <laughs> I know. Not again. Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, this made the soldiers an easy target for the German uh, gunners, snipers, like you, na- you name it. So with his peers falling before him, including his company commander, James requested authorization from his sergeant major to play his bagpipes. Now, what I'm about to read is a description of his actions as detailed by the committee that awarded James the Victoria Cross. For some 10 minutes, Piper Richardson strode up and down outside the wire, playing his pipes with great coolness. The effect was instantaneous. Inspired by his splendid example, the company rushed the wire with such fury and determination that the obstacle was overcome and the position captured. Now, talk about a moving target. No thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I'm a little confused here. Okay. I don't know a whole lot about Pipers in the war. Okay. But he, he saw everybody, like, dying on this barbed wire and it was still there. And he was like, hey, can I go play my bagpipes there? That's what I would like to do right now. Yeah, he wanted to inspire the men, increase their morale, and by playing his bagpipes. And it worked. Whoa. That that's a weird job to me. Like totally. if I'm in the war, I'm probably would rather have a rifle than some bagpipes. And if I had bagpipes, there's no way I'm getting out of the trench. <laughs> No, the bagpipers absolutely moved with the soldiers as they um, went across no man's land into the like into the battlefields without a gun. No, they they would have had guns, but they also had their bagpipes on hand. That where did they put all this stuff? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Like he would have had some sort of ammunition on him, Um, but yeah, that was their job. That's weird. It's a crappy one, in my opinion. (laughs) Like, no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's what he did. Now, yeah, in a subsequent bombing operation, um, James was ordered to assist some of the wounded men and POWs back to the trenches. But remembering that he had left his bagpipe some 200 yards back, he went to retrieve them despite being encouraged to leave them behind. Now, stubbornly, he refused, and unfortunately, it would be the last time that 20-year-old James Richardson would be seen alive. Now, eventually, his body was found, and he was buried at the Adenac Military Cemetery in France. This man died for his bagpipes? He did. They're expensive, Shauna. (laughs) 
I, I, I do love bagpipes. I have to admit that, you know, that music is really kind of sentimental to me, but he died going back for his bagpipes. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to kind of judge because we don't know what was actually happening at that particular moment in time. Maybe it was a little bit quieter on the front. Um, It was a bit quieter, so he was going to go back and make it a bit louder? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, if he's a piper, he's probably thinking, oh, shit, my bagpipes. Like, I need them. I don't know. Why did he drop his bagpipes? You think that's what he would be holding on to? Well, like I said, like he, like they still have to do regular military operations. So he was helping like wounded get back to the front. So he's probably just preoccupied. I guess And then so. was like, oh, I need these. I know. it. There is no like modern translation for this. I don't think. I know it's, it's senseless in a way, but yeah. Yeah. Well, James died doing what he loved, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Good for you, James. He had lots of cojones. (laughs) 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 All right. um, Hero number three is Thomas Ord Lauder Wilkinson. Now, Thomas was born to Edith and Charles Wilkinson on June 29th, 1891, at the large farm on the Dud Mayston estate near Bridgeworth North in Shropshire. Sure. <laughs> Why do they have like 10 names in England for like where you live? <laughs> I think it's because it's uh, everything's been around for so long that like, 20 different groups have come along and named it and they had to, <laughs> yeah, you know, make sure everybody knew where everything was depending on what group you were in. I know. The Anglo-Saxons, the whoever, I don't know, past then, but lots of people they had to know. That's true. Um, now, as a young boy, he attended Parkside School in Surrey and then Wellington College. Um, it now appears that these schools um, are a like kind of for the well-to-do. I don't know if that was the case back then, but uh, I kind of just looked into these schools and they are gorgeous. Like the grounds are gorgeous. So if you're interested in sending like your eight-year-old child to Parkside, um, be prepared to cough up about $9,600 Canadian per term. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. Yes. And then Wellington College is 10000 or no, that's 10,000 pounds. It's $17,000 Canadian per term. Jeez, that's more than the hockey schools here. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, they're beautiful. If you can afford it, I mean, wow. all the power to you. <laughs> Um, but when he graduated in 1912, he left for his, um, he left for Vancouver. Now his father was actually working in Vancouver at the time of his birth and his family eventually migrated there. Now at the outbreak of war, Wilkinson too was another individual that was a prompt to join the 16th battalion, which is the same as our friend James the Piper. And he did so on September 23rd, 1914, as a private under service number 28804. 
Now, upon arrival in England, he actually transferred to the loyal North Lanc- Lancashire. I always want to say Shire, but I think it's Shire. Lancashire. 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 I know English people get mad when you say Shire. Because <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're not hobbits? I know. They're like, this isn't Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Lancashire. Uh, regiment, which is the 7th Battalion of the 19th Division. And he went in as a gunner. Now, by this time, he had been commissioned as a lieutenant. Now, at the Somme, the 7th Battalion provided support for the 57th and 58th Brigades through the first days of the battle. And on July the 5th, at 2 p.m., the 7th was detailed to assist in a bombing attack. But unfortunately, their counterparty had to fall back, leaving behind a machine gun. Now, Thomas rushed forward to the abandoned gun and began firing on the German counter-advance, which, according to commanding officer Lieutenant Colonel Sherbrooke, uh, he was responsible for greatly slowing down the enemy. Now, that same day, during a bombing attack, Thomas found four of his peers stuck behind, uh, and I quote, a solid block of earth, to which the Germans were throwing bombs at. Now, in the words of the London Gazette, it stated, Thomas promptly mounted a machine gun on the parapet, dispersing the enemy bombers. Then, in an attempt to rescue a wounded man, Thomas was shot through the heart. Throughout the day, he set a magnificent example of courage and self-sacrifice. Now, unfortunately, Thomas's body has never been recovered from the battlefield, and his name is listed on the British Memorial for the Missing at Thiepful? Thiepful? Thiepful. Sure. I think Thiepful. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if you were paying attention, you'll notice that I said that his battalion was part of the 19th Division, and nowhere does Canadian... The Canadian Army have 19 divisions. <laughs> so he was actually serving in the British Army when he got this Victoria Cross. So I actually found it interesting that he's listed as a recipient of the uh, VC in Canada. It's not a recognition through through England. I can only assume maybe because that he enlisted in Canada and that's where he was living. So I included him. Alrighty. Um, so last, but certainly not least, we are going to talk about John Chipman Kerr. Now, John was born in Fox River, Nova Scotia on January 11th, 1887, making him the only Canadian born soldier on our list today. So yay. <laughs> Now, as a young man, he moved out west to the Kootenays to work as a lumberjack, which I always think of that cartoon where he's like, and he was something, something down by waters. You know that that cartoon? Isn't that a Monty Python sketch? No, don't you remember that cartoon on the CBC? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm I'm mistaking the... Yeah, no, sorry, yeah. I'm mistaking the other one. But yes, I do remember that one. Absolutely. And I'm like, oh my goodness, there's actually a lumberjack. 
Of course. <laughs> it wasn't like a made-up profession. That was based on reality. <laughs> I know it was, but I just thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> um, but he uprooted again in 1912 to Spirit River, Alberta, where he established a homestead with his brother and farmed the land. Now, about 13 months into the war, John and his brother, Roland, walked 50 miles to the nearest train station and headed to Edmonton to enlist. But before leaving, he actually tacked a note on his door, um, which read, War is hell, but what is homesteading? (laughs) (laughs) It was worth the 50-mile walk to just get the hell out of there. I guess so. (laughs) I've been to Spirit River. There's not much up there. <laughs> I I, do, I feel bad. I don't even know where Spirit River is. Um, It's kind of by Grand Prairie. Ah, uh, north. Yeah. So enlisting as a private with the 66th Battalion, John was assigned number 101-465, and he left for England on May 1st, 1916. Now, the men of the 66th later joined the men of the 49th Edmonton Battalion, and they were stationed at Sanctuary Wood along the Ypres Salient in June of 1916. Now, in September of that year, the now corporal moved south to the Somme near Corselet. In an advance on Fabic Trench, the 7th Brigade encircled a 250-yard section of the trench. Now, as a bayonet man, John led a bombing raid over the block. Now, having advanced over 30 yards alongside the Parados, he was met with a German grenade. Shielding himself, he unfortunately lost two of his fingers off of his right hand. They were blown off. But this did not stop him. Mm -mm. Uh, Knowing that his bombing party was running low on ammunition, uh, he ran along the top of the trench and opened fire with his rifle, killing several Germans. So thinking they were surrounded, the remaining 62 Germans surrendered and John assisted them in escorting the POWs to the rear. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's a uh, that's Captain Winters like style. <laughs> right there, man. <laughs> but um this marked the end of John's active service on the front. He spent nine weeks in England recovering from his wounds. And for a period of time afterwards, he served as an orderly and then as an acting corporal for the Canadian Forestry Battalion. After the war, John returned home alone. Um, Unfortunately, his brother had been killed in action. Now, Actually, at the outbreak of World War II, I mean, we're jumping ahead quite a bit, the now 52-year-old enlisted in the Army, hoping to serve overseas in the Air Force. But, um, yeah, he didn't quite get his wish. He was positioned as a service policeman and the sergeant of the guard in Sea Island in British Columbia. (laughs) So he really hated homesteading. Even at 52, he was like, get me off this farm. I know. I don't know. Well, I did read he worked a little bit in the oil patch um, and something else. But yeah. 
Um, and I don't know anything else. I don't know if he had kids or if he got married or, uh, yeah, I just don't know. So anyway, um, he died on February 19th, 1963 at the age of 67 in Port Moody, British Columbia. And he is buried at the Mountain View Cemetery in Vancouver. Now, he did receive several other decorations, and all of them are held at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Um, great museum. If you're in Ottawa, go. It's fabulous. Um, and then in 1951, a mountain in the Vic uh, Victoria Cross Range in Jasper National Park was named after him. And then he had a park named after him in Port Moody. So, Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is cool. I want a mountain named after me. <laughs> That's cooler than winning the Victoria Cross. Yeah, I kind of I, agree. I'd rather have the mountain. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't know. Have you noticed like when you're researching? Um, so, for example, you write in Festibear, like you'll get a mountain in Alberta. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I know. All of our mountains are named after, seems like World War One. Yeah, World War One battles or like really inappropriate names that need to be changed if they haven't already. Right. Right. So that's it. It was like very simple, high level story of these men. But I just wanted to bring to the forefront some of the actions of the men on the ground. I mean, we always talk about like sort of the big bosses um, like Joffre and, and French and General Haig and that. They're great and all, and but I I like learning about, you know, the true stories on the ground and who these people were, so. That's cool. I like that. Thank you for that information, Ashley. Yeah, you're welcome. You know what would be cool? If somebody that was related to these men heard this. Oh, and yeah, maybe they could tell us more about them. Yeah, if there's anybody related to Piper James or... Thomas or whoever else, Leo, send us a line. We'd love to learn more. I think that'd be super cool. Absolutely. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, again, um, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and uh, Apple Podcasts. Is it Apple Podcasts? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or check out our Facebook page, or you can find us on Instagram or on our website at www.whataboutthecanadians.com. And please, please, if you like this episode, tell your friends. Um, we would love to have more people listening so we can share our knowledge with you. So, all right. Have a good night. Thanks, everyone. Bye.